0: In chapters 12 through 14, the chronological narrative of Revelation was interrupted to provide some comprehensive information, making the book easier to understand. Admittedly, at first glance, the switch from chronological narrative to topical discussion can, can, at first glance, make Revelation seem more complicated. But in the end, once we understand that parenthesis, It really clears several things up. Chapter 12 dealt with conflicts both in heaven and on earth. Chapter 13 introduced us to two of the major characters of the tribulation period, the beast from the sea, which is also known as Antichrist, and then the beast from the land, which is also known as the false prophet. Tonight's passage, chapter 14, speaks of the ultimate victory of Christ. It's a series of pronouncements and visions revealed to reassure the believer of the ultimate triumph of God. In this conflict, that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And actually, I think you can make the case that it goes all the way back to Isaiah chapter 14. Now, assuming Isaiah chapter 14 is speaking about Satan, which I believe it is, Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 says this, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn, You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high God. I will make myself like the most high God. Why a creature? would ever believe that they could assume the role of creator is beyond me. And especially beyond me, considering that Satan is significantly more intelligent than any of us here. And he made the worst mistake anybody's ever made. The next one that comes close is Adam in the garden. So this conflict that began all the way back in eternity past, before mankind was ever created, is going to end with God being victorious, and with Satan's ultimate defeat. The point of tonight's message is, in the end, God wins. If you were to summarize chapter 14 with one phrase, in the end, God wins. And because we are God's children, in the end, we win. Not in and of ourselves, but only because we are associated with Jesus Christ our Lord. And because we know that victory is certain, we can live life with a calm assurance and strong encouragement, to use a phrase that we saw in Hebrews chapter 6 this morning. There might be details along the way. The road of life is a very winding road. It's got ups and downs, and there are details that come up from time to time. And because of these details, life may seem a bit suspenseful as to what's going to happen in the future. But in spite of those moments of suspense, as we're going through the moment, we can remember, even though I might not know exactly how this is going to turn out, I know how the big picture is going to turn out. I may not know whether or not my wife is going to be cured of cancer. But in the end, since he's a believer and I'm a believer, then I know, if I was in this situation, that my wife is going to be in heaven and I'm going to be reunited with her. You see, I don't know how this is going to work out with my job, for example, but I know that in the end, I'm going to stand before Christ and he's going to evaluate my life, not on the basis of one or two or five or ten or a thousand failures, because those have been covered by the blood of Christ, but based upon faithfulness. I know how it's going to work out. You wonder why we study eschatology. Eschatology is the study of the last things. And when we consider eschatology, we often think of the the fantastic last things, like the last three and a half years of the tribulation that we're studying right now, or the millennial reign of Christ, or the second coming of Christ, or the rapture of the church. Eschatology is anything that happens in the future. It's the study of the last things. And one of the, one of the issues in eschatology is heaven. Spending eternity in, in heaven with God in a place of no more pain. You don't need any Tylenol or aspirin or Advil or, or opioids or morphine. You won't need any of that in heaven because there'll be no more pain. Pain is a warning signal to your body that something's going wrong. And the reason you won't have any more pain is because there'd be nothing else going wrong. Nothing could go wrong in your resurrection body. You know, that's a part of eschatology. So eschatology is much more than just the study of the rapture, the church, or the tribulation. No more pain, no more sorrow. All of us have sorrow. Most of us have sorrow every day, at least some portion of every day, if we're paying attention. If we really love people, then you're going to have sorrow from time to time. No more pain, no more tears. Revelation is going to tell us later on that God is going to wipe every last tear away from our eyes. It's perfectly normal to weep at certain things. If they are tears of self-pity, then that's not a spiritual thing. But Jesus wept at the tomb of a man that he loved. Think about this, knowing that in a few moments he was going to resurrect him or resuscitate him. Knowing, because he saw the pain of death. No more pain, no more tears, no more death. Contemplating eternity is an amazing thing, isn't it? You never run out of time. I wonder, will I get any time with Jesus in heaven? Well, yeah, because you're going to be there forever. Think about it for a minute. I want to meet a few characters. I want to meet David in heaven and i I just just love to sit and talk to him for a little while yeah you're going to have plenty of opportunity because you're going to be there forever and I love what C.S. Lewis said I don't know if he's right it's poetic but the way he ends the Chronicles of Narnia is that every day will be better than the last now how does that work I don't know but I believe it and I can't wait in one sense I can't wait to find out just how it lasts so, in the end, we win. That's eschatology. Since we know how it's going to turn out, it takes the suspense out of it. There was a, a man named Zig Ziglar. Anybody heard that name before? Zig was a great motivational speaker. He was, a, he was Christian. He used to teach a Sunday school class at First Baptist up in Dallas. And Zig gave one of the best illustrations of this I've ever seen in my life. He said this was back when the Dallas Cowboys were going to the Super Bowl. Relatively regularly, so that was a couple decades ago, I think. But he said their church had service that night, and then they all were going to get together afterwards and watch the game on a tape delay. And they didn't want anybody to call them, nobody tell them what was going on, because they wanted to watch it as if it was going on. Well, Zig said somebody had had the radio on in the car, I guess, and he heard the final score. As he left. And so he was so disappointed. And it was one of those ones where I think the Cowboys won, maybe they, they Buffalo 52 to something. Remember that one where it just, they just wiped him out? So all the way over to the friend's house, Zig is just kind of upset because it spoiled the suspense for him. And then he watched the game with everybody else, didn't tell him what the final score was. And he saw everybody get high and low and, and high and low again. And then by halftime, it was getting to be pretty much over. But they were really upset with certain calls that the referees made. Well, no, that wasn't pass interference. That wasn't offsides. You know, that's not fair that they called that. And people are yelling at the TV like some people do. I do. You know, what are you talking about? <laughs> One time I broke a chair over a tree, over a football game. It was Cindy's favorite chair. But that's we'll just let aside. So I get I get a little upset too. But the point, man, Six, I'm sitting there realizing, even though it doesn't look good right now, I know they're going to win. And guess what? I know they're going to win by a lot. So he had a little different attitude. He enjoyed the game. And he enjoyed some of the suspense, too. How are they going to work out? they Are going to get a first down here? Is this one of the times they're going to have to punt? He didn't know those specifics, but he knew when it was all over that Dallas would be celebrating another Super Bowl victory. So he watched the game with a calm assurance and a strong encouragement. God wants you to watch this game. And I know, to say it's a game, I don't want to insult anybody by saying it because I know these pains in this life are real. The diseases we face are real. The economic challenges are real. The interpersonal relationship issues are real. But we win because God wins. And that's what eschatology ultimately teaches us. And that's what this chapter more specifically will teach us. Remember, this is a parenthetical chapter. What we're going to see tonight is we're going to go into the future all the way to the end. It would be like this. It would be like if we were watching that football game and and Zig saw one of his friends that was watching it almost have a heart attack because of some bad call. It would be almost as if Zig went up to him and said, come here for a second. Listen, I see you're really upset. I got a secret for you. I heard it on the radio on the way over here. Dallas wins. So just chill. Just relax. Enjoy the game, but just chill. Your team's going to win. And I don't mean to to minimize this in any way, please, by doing a, a sports analogy. It's much bigger than that. But if God's on our side and he wins, then guess what? We win. Details aside, you will win. Now, people talk about the victorious life. Sometimes the way those things go. I'm not talking about that because sometimes there's too much baggage attached with some of that terminology. I'm talking about a life of victory because you are, if you trusted Jesus Christ, you win. So, guess what? Relax. Because it's going to work out okay. Even if a particular detail may not. And again, I'm not telling you not to take the details seriously. Sometimes action needs to be taken. Uh, Take the action. But just know, you're going to heaven. And you're going to spend eternity there. There's another thing I can tell you. I can tell you for sure. Because of the dispensation we live in, we're going to go to heaven. We're going to go before the judgment seat of Christ where his bride will will celebrate this marriage supper of the Lamb, and we're coming back with him. The things that we'll study once we get to Revelation 19 and, and so forth, we're going to see those things. Eschatology is awesome. It's not just to satisfy people's curiosity. In verses 1 through 6 of chapter 14, And I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having his name and the name of the Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of a loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Now, this is music that's coming from heaven. I found it kind of cool that they play harps in heaven. They play stringed instruments in heaven. And they sang a new song before the throne. And before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women, for they have kept themselves chaste, or they have kept themselves a virgin. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth They are blameless. Actually, that's where we'll stop. We'll pick up verse 6 in a moment. John is viewing this scene as a yet future time at the end of the Great Tribulation when Jesus has already returned to earth. Hence my illustration a moment ago when I'm whispering in Tim's ear that, I know you're real upset right now, but listen, I, I read ahead and we win. It's almost as if God the Holy Spirit said, this is really intense, all these Sealed, trumpet, or sealed judgments and the trumpet judgments, and we're fixing to have the bowl judgments come up. Just in case you're worried about this, guess what? Christ wins. So we see him standing on Mount Zion. There's some debate among people who study the book of Revelation as to where this scene takes place. Some people would like to have the scene take place in heaven, that this is a Mount Zion in heaven. That's where they see him standing. There are a couple problems with that. They're not recognizing that this is a parenthetical statement. See, they say Christ hadn't come back yet, so how would he be standing on earth? This is looking into the future, giving us assurance of his victory. The second thing that there's a problem with there is the 144,000. If these are indeed the same 144,000 that we've met before, and there's no reason to think that they're not, these people have been sealed. They're not going to die in the tribulation. They're not martyrs of the tribulation, so they're not going go to heaven. They'll go straight from the tribulation into the millennial kingdom. So for those reasons, I would, I would argue that this is a scene where John is looking down the quarters of time and he sees Jesus victorious with a name written on their forehead. Rather than taking the mark of the beast, they have taken the name of Christ. So chronologically, the second advent is not taking place here. It will take place in chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. This is parenthetical. He saw the lamb... Standing on earth, specifically on Mount Zion, with 144,000 Jewish witnesses that God had sealed for the tribulation. Mount Zion, there's a lot of discussion, even if it's on earth, where's Mount Zion? It's my understanding Mount Zion's the Mount of Olives. But, again, the picture is, is more, the, the, the point is more that Jesus stands victorious in this imagery. The song that they're, that they're hearing, that John hears, originates in heaven during the tribulation. But the event itself takes place on earth. And if we remember that this is parenthetical, all this will make more sense to you. Verse 4, this is a verse that has been misused over the course of the church history, and I think with disastrous results. Verse 4 literally says, these are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they are virgins. Now, first of all, the defiling with women doesn't mean that the act of intimacy within the context that God has designed is a defiling act. That's not. I mean, this is not a knock against women whatsoever, or the act within the within the marriage context. This is saying that these people are so focused on serving God that they have not been married. There are different views, but this is my understanding. This is my best understanding. They have not been married, and they've spent their time focusing in. ...upon following the Lamb wherever he goes. Just as an aside, if I may, because it's in the news now and we need to be able to properly relate to our culture. The practice of Rome in requiring their priest to follow this passage as an example, Revelation 14.4 and a couple others, unfortunately is brutally ripping the passage from its context, and has been proven to be applicationally problematic, to put it mildly. God is the one that created us the way that we are. There's no passage of Scripture, and I know about the passage where Paul says, I prefer you just stay single, but Paul was not not issuing that as a mandate, and certainly not a mandate for pastors or for priests, and the other problem is there's no... New Testament mandates for a specialized priesthood in this dispensation. We're all priests. So if you take people that were never designed to act in celibacy for their whole life, force them into this context, I don't want to say it's no wonder that things happen, but it's it shouldn't be shocking to us that abuses happen, and I'm, I'm in no way excusing the abuses. I'm just saying, right, what do you think is going to happen if you put people in this totally unnatural position? So, This is not a passage that can be used to justify that. This is a tribulational passage about these very specific people, these 144,000. By the way, Paul was single. Peter had a wife. Peter's called an elder. There is no biblical justification for saying a specialized priesthood should remain celibate. In verse 5, And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Like the other times that this phrase is used in the New Testament, it doesn't mean they were sinless. It meant they were Blameless. If they had sinned, they had made confession for that sin and they had moved on. It does, nobody was sinless except for the Son of God Himself. Verses 6 through 8. And I saw another angel flying in mid heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him who made the heavens and the earth. And the sea, and the springs of water. And another angel, a second one, follows, saying, "Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She was made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality." So John's now given a vision of an angel carrying the message that is called in this passage the eternal gospel. Our first instinct when we see this word gospel is to think that it's referring to the gospel as, we know it, the good news about Jesus Christ. But that is problematic in the context of this passage. The context of this passage seems to indicate that the message is one of judgment and condemnation. Because the angel announces in this same passage, "...fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come." That is what the eternal gospel is in this passage. So the eternal message, this eternal gospel, seems to be in this context a message of God's righteousness and judgment rather than a message of eternal salvation from hell. This is not a substitute for John 3.16 or Acts 16.31 or Ephesians 2.8 and 9. The good news in this context is that the hour of judgment has come, which would be good news for believers especially believers in the tribulation that were undergoing persecution. And that's so the good news for unbelievers. The first angel was followed by a second angel who announced that Babylon the great, which intoxicated others with her adulteries and her sin has fallen. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of her wine and the passion of her immorality. We're going to reserve an extended comment on this idea of Babylon the Great till we get to a more extensive passage in Revelation 17 and 18. But let me say this at this point. uh, A lot of people think that Babylon the Great is a code word for Rome. I lean toward Babylon being Babylon. Now, we'll talk about that when we get to chapters 17 and 18. I want to hold that discussion for that time if we could. But we see again that this enemy of the Lamb, Babylon the Great, who has led so many people astray, has fallen. Then verses 9 through 12. And another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or upon his hand, he will also drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night for those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Before we speak one word about this paragraph, let me makes something extremely clear. Salvation, no matter what the dispensation, no matter what the era, whether it's the, the period of Adam and Eve, all the way through the tribulational period, salvation from the eternal penalty of sin is always by grace, through faith, faith alone in Christ alone. Now, if we go back to the Old Testament period, they might not have known the name of Jesus. They wouldn't have known the name of Jesus. But faith in Yahweh, they place their faith in Yahweh, to forgive them their sins, and to grant them eternal life. It was always and always will be by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, regardless of the dispensation. That fact is not in dispute here. But in the tribulation, it's apparent that there is a line that one can cross similar to the line we talked about in Hebrews chapter 4, chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, although these are unbelievers that are crossing this line, not believers like in Hebrews 6. But there's a a line that one can cross with respect to choosing for or against God in the tribulation. And that line is crossed by one's choice in whether or not to take the mark of the beast. Now, don't be confused about this. In this dispensation, and everyone before this that I know of, you have an opportunity to trust Christ all the way up until your final breath. God only knows exactly what the opportunities are. Now, some may be like Pharaoh. Pharaoh had multitude of opportunities. And as every opportunity came, and the more he said no, the more his heart was hardened. And then finally, the text tells us that God hardened his heart by giving him more opportunities. So there can be a line that one crosses today, but I couldn't tell you what it is. Only God would know what that line is. But in the, in the future, in the tribulation, everybody's going to know what the line is. If you come across that crossroads and you take the mark of the beast, it doesn't mean you were saved and lost your salvation. It means you made a choice against God at that particular time that will have eternal ramifications. You won't be able to say, whoa, 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 I changed my mind. Now that I see Jesus coming, I want to erase this mark of the beast. I want to put the mark of God on my forehead. That's not the way it works in the tribulation. So that's why in verse 9, John saw a third angel followed with another judgment that worshipers of the beast and his image who receive his mark will be objects of God's wrath and will be destined for eternal torment along with Satan, the demon world, and all unsaved people. Again, I don't want you to confuse this. We need to keep things in their context. This is a tribulational issue. It's not an issue today. There are people today that have denied Christ in the past, that have changed their mind about that, and they are Jesus worshipers now. They are saved people now. But in the tribulation, once you take the mark of the beast, you're done. There's no turning back from that. How that works out theologically I can't tell you for sure. This is a special event. Verse 10 again, He will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. This is strong language, with God pouring out his wrath, and he's angry when he does this. And they will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. I've often wondered if... We have a view into hell. I'm still not sure that we do. Of course, Jesus would, and apparently the holy angels have some vision into hell, but I still am not totally sure about our, I don't want to see it. If it's optional, I don't want to live next to that. I'd like, I'm going to pick another side of the of God's universe to be on. I don't want to see the suffering of people in hell. And how that all works, again, I'm not sure. There are some things I told you when we started this study, and I have to say I don't know, probably about as much as anything other than the study of angelology. But that, I don't know exactly how it works. But verse 11 is key for a theological discussion that's going on in today's Christian culture, not in the widespread way, but maybe in a local way. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast in his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Recently, even locally, there's been some discussion, and that discussion has even occurred within people that uh, don't go to our church anymore than used to, it, that I still have contact with, that they've gone to some of these lectures and whatnot, about the fact that hell is not forever. There are a few people that are teaching that out there today, and actually some very well-known people have written books in response to it. Robert Lightner wrote a book in response to it. I think it's going to be published posthumously. The point is, I wish that were so, but it's not a biblical concept. This passage tells us that their torment goes on forever and ever. Again, I know I know people that have died, to the best of my knowledge, without Christ. And they are awaiting the eternal lake of fire. And that grieves me so badly. It, it grieves me enough that it motivates me to make sure that nobody I know is without at least a hearing of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they can make their mind up. One of the people, since my mom's with the Lord now, I'll say who one of the people was. One of the people was my mom's mom, my grandmother. I remember when I was my grandson's age. I was eight years old. lived in Dallas, Texas. I guess that put me in about the third grade. And I remember just being so troubled at eight years old, so troubled that my grandmother was not a believer in the Lord Jesus. So I got up. It was probably only about 9 o'clock at night, but we went to bed at 8. So, so Mom and Dad could have a little time to themselves before they had to go to bed. And I got up, and I found my mom, and I was in tears. And I said, Mom, we have to call Momo. Well, you remember it's very expensive to call long distance back in the early 60s. Remember, some of you remember that. And uh, so she said, Why don't you write her a letter? And so we sat down, and I wrote Momo the gospel out as I understood it. I only had been a believer for a year Myself at that point, but I was so troubled that she would reject Christ. As far as I know, she had not ever trusted Christ. And that grieves me terribly, to know that she'll be also an object of the wrath of God. She heard the gospel. Rather than trying to change the theology, giving some biblical evidence of perhaps what would happen is a person would go to hell and after they had paid enough of a penalty then they would just cease to exist it's called annihilationism it's a little bit of a tongue twister but I would just prefer to say they just have no more existence heaven's forever and even though we don't like talking about it because it's a very painful subject especially when we know people that are most likely there or they don't change or are going to be there we can't change the theology just to make us feel better and or to make them feel better. Do you think it's a, do you think it's any motivation to them at all to say, well, you're going to hell, but you'll only be there for a few million years, and then you're going to cease to exist? No. Tell them the truth. Tell them it's going to go on forever, but you don't have to go there. It's up to you. Right now, you don't have to go. If you go, it's your choice. Jesus did everything he needed to do to make salvation possible for you. And then I've had people, and I've told them, I said, well, you don't know what I've done. I said, I don't care what you've done. I really don't care what you've done. I care what Jesus did, and he paid a penalty. That penalty that he paid, we'll talk about over the next two weeks in our Sunday morning lessons. Those that have been with us on Wednesday night are going to see a little bit of a repeat of that material, but I hope that you'll agree that material is worth considering more than once. Then in verse 12, here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God, and their faith in Jesus. So there's a contrast. There's a contrast between those who will be in eternal torment and those who persevere in the commandments of God and in their faith in Jesus. Again, please don't take these passages, transport them back into new, the earlier part of the New Testament and talk about perseverance of the saints as some people do today. They're, they're ripping this so far from its context when they do that. Verse 13 stands on its own and I heard a voice from heaven saying "Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes the Spirit yes says the Spirit that they may rest from their labors and their deeds follow them. It's true that all believers will rest upon their death from persecutions in life. All believers of all time but this is a promise specifically to tribulational believers. John Wolver wrote this. He said the passage, this passage is often quoted in regard to God's general blessings on all Christians. But the context indicates that the blessing is especially for those who die in the great tribulation, the last three and a half years of the tribulation. For them it is a blessed release from persecution, torture, and trial, and a deliverance into the glorious presence of the Lord. The way that it would have been described if if my friend Elliot Johnson was here, he would have used two terms, and this might be helpful for you. When we talk about hermeneutics or the, the science of interpretation of the Scriptures, our goal is to determine the author's intended meaning as it is expressed in the text. That seems pretty simple. That's the same thing Supreme Court justices should do. To determine the author's intended meaning, as it is expressed in the text. So that's that's what we're shooting for. As we're doing that, we may come across a passage like this which again says, "Right blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their deeds follow them." Now we could say does that have anything to do with the believer of other dispensations? Well, in a way it does. Eliot would have called that significance. What he meant by that was, if you you looked at a big, broad circle, could that, and he, he he would kick me a little bit for this, but I'm going to tweak it, could that be understood in some way to apply to the believers, say, of the church age? Well, you could say in principle, yes, because the same kind of things happen. Is that the meaning of the passage? And he would have drawn a smaller circle within the bigger circle. The tight meaning of the passage. That's what our goal is. To determine specifically in this context what it means. No. In this context, it's referencing tribulation believers. Who are freed up from the persecution. And the trials and the torture of the, of the tribulation. That's the meaning of the passage. Does it have significance for us? Well... Yes, of course it does. We, I, I do it at, at funerals as well. I don't use this particular passage, but oftentimes I'll tell grieving believers in the Lord Jesus about their departed loved one. And I'll say there's there are no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, no more death. Well, actually, that's a passage that comes a little bit later in the text. So it is, it is, is, it, is it wrong to say that? No, because it does have the significance is it the tight meaning? No, no, that's not the tight meaning. But at that point, I don't feel inclined to discuss meaning and significance with people at a, at a funeral service. If you go to a funeral next week and the pastor or the one who's officiating at the service uses this passage to comfort people, don't sneer. It's okay. The passage can be used to comfort even people that die now. But the specifics are for those tribulation of believers who are suffering so badly. That when they die in the Lord, in Christ, then they will rest and their deeds will follow them. Verses 14 through 16. And I looked and behold, a white cloud and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, because the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. There are several different characters going on here. We have to follow them or we're going to get a wrong idea. First, verse 14, some people think that the, the... one that like a son of man, in verse 14, is one of the angels, but it's more likely not one of the angels. This is more likely the Lamb. The term son of man was the favorite title that Jesus used of himself. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, the the title is used by Matthew of Jesus, either quoting Jesus or himself, 25 times in in the gospel of Matthew. This person on the cloud is most likely the lamb himself. Then we get to verse 15. Another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice, To him who sat on the cloud, Put your sickle and reap, because the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. The sickle in the lamb's hand, or if I can, the one that's like the, like a son of man, we get that all the way back from Daniel, uh, suggests judgment, of course. And when there's judgment, we're going to see in just a minute. We're not talking about a little bit of judgment. We're talking about a lot of bit, as my daughter used to say, a lot of bit of judgment. And we'll see that now as the passage concludes in verse 17. Another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and also had a sharp sickle. And another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out of the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. And the angel swung a sickle to the earth, and he gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth, and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And watch this in verse twenty. And the wine press was trodden outside the city, and blood came out of the wine from the wine press up to horses' bridles for a distance of two hundred miles. This is Very possibly, I'm going to say probably, a reference to a battle that's going to occur after this time. Again, we're we're looking down into time. This is most likely a reference to what happens after the Battle of Armageddon. The slaughter is massive. Now, one way to understand this is blood flowed out of this press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for 200 miles. Now, a horse's bridle. I looked this up. I'm no cowboy. But a horse's bridle is about four feet high. There are only nine to 12 pints of blood in the average human being. It's somewhat, and by the way, this this may be, there's a lot, a lot of different views on this. Some people think this has happened up in the Valley of Jezreel. Some people think this, this circles the city of Jerusalem. But whatever, it is it is figurative language. Revelation is so challenging to you know what we take, literally what we take figuratively. But there's not enough blood to make it four feet high for 200 miles. i tried to do the math on that. Some of you who are accountants or engineers could probably do it really, really quickly. My point is we need to understand this. It's not necessarily literal but, but hyperbole for a massive slaughter. At the Battle of Armageddon, if that is indeed what is being alluded to here in preview form, it'll be a massive slaughter. Now, one other way to understand it, rather than it being uh, four feet of literal blood, it could be understood, and Mark Hitchcock understood it as that, that the blood was so massive that it splattered up four feet onto the horse's, near the horse's bridle. Either way. It's a graphic picture of slaughter at the end of the tribulation. I pity the world that looks only at the first advent of Christ and takes Jesus less than seriously. And they use his name as a curse word and as the, the butt of certain jokes And have no regard for him at all. Because a baby lying in a manger outside of Bethlehem, probably in in the wintertime of 5 to 4 B.C., is not really threatening to anybody, is he? But that same baby who grew up and was crucified and seemed so powerless to stop anything but, but remember, he wasn't. Remember what he told Peter when Peter wanted to stop it with violence? He says, you don't, you don't need to do that. I, ca- I have 12 legions of angels I could call right now. A legion was six, 7,000 men at full strength. Now, they were rarely at full strength, but let's just, that's 84,000 angels he could have called to stop it. He could have stopped it himself, but he didn't. And so many people view Christianity as weak because of that. You know, another reason people view Christianity as weak is because of the humility of Christ and the fact that Christ tells us to be humble. That was not a characteristic that either the Greeks or the Romans at the time would have found to be palatable. Both the Greeks and the Romans would have found humility to be a weakness. Yes, you showed humility toward the emperor or toward somebody that had more power than you or more money than you if you wanted something from them, but an equal to exercise humility, it. and it's certainly someone who is in a superior position socially to show humility to someone who is in a less superior position. That was totally foreign to their thinking. So here comes along Jesus and said, if you want to be first, get, go to the last of the line. And people looked at it as weakness. This isn't weak. This is a massive slaughter of God's enemies. I feel for people now, and I feel for people in the tribulation period that receive that mark of the beast on their hand or their forehead. I, I feel for them, for anyone to have to undergo the wrath of God. Jesus came the first time in humility and meekness. The second time he comes, it isn't going to be that way. And I'm sure there will be people that were saying, if I had only known If I'd only known. But isn't that the beauty of the cross? The person with a capital P who suffered those things could have stopped it with a single thought. But had he stopped it with a single thought, there would be no purpose in us meeting here tonight. We just may as well eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die and we spend eternity in hell. That's what makes what we celebrate in these next few weeks so vitally important to us now. Jesus' humility on the cross should not be mistaken for impotence when it comes to fulfilling his purpose. The conflict that began with Satan's initial rebellion in eternity past will end in Satan's defeat and God's victory.